All right, we left off last week in Ezekiel chapter 42, verses 13 and 14. Let me read those to you again. Ezekiel 42, verses 13 and 14. Then he said to me, The north chambers and the south chambers opposite the yard are the holy chambers, where the priests who approach the Lord shall eat the most holy offerings. They shall, there they shall put the most holy offerings, the grain offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering, for the place is holy. When the priests enter the holy place, they shall not go out of it into the outer court without laying their garments in which they minister, laying there their garments in which they minister, for these are holy. They shall put on other garments before they go near to that which is for the people. All right. That's where the section of chapter 42 that we kind of started to break down last week. And that's where we're going to pick up tonight. In the millennial temple, there will be special chambers for where the priests are to eat the grain and the sin and the guilt offerings. All right. What we're going to do now is we're going to go back to the book of Leviticus and show you how this is how the priests were to be taken care of. If you remember, the uh, other tribes all got land. They all were given portions, and they were able to harvest and farm and get their, their flocks or whatever and get their livelihood that way. The priests were given no land, and you'll see as well, during the Millennial Kingdom, the priests, the Levites, won't be given land as well. And there's, this is how God took care of them, but there's more than just this is how God provided for the priests during this time. As you're about to see, as we go back and look at the book of Leviticus, you're going to see there are some interesting comments that God makes about this. So go with me back to Leviticus chapter 2. Now, as we lay the foundation tonight about what the, how God took care of the priests and what their roles were and some of the responsibilities, be ready because we will be looking tonight at how they correlate with our role as priests today. Say, I didn't, I'm not a priest. You're about to find out you are. Leviticus chapter 2, look at verses 1 through 10. It says, when anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And then he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. When you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering, it shall be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a grain offering baked on a griddle, it shall be of fine flour and unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. And you shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn this on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offering. So here we see when they were to bring their grain offering or their, their, their Offering of flour just by itself, they would mix some frankincense in it and burn that on the altar so the smell would be before the Lord. The rest of the flour was given to Aaron or his sons. But if they brought their grain offering and they'd already baked it, it had to be without yeast and to be unleavened. And they were to take a portion of that, burn it before the Lord. The rest was to be given to Aaron and his sons. And that's how the priests were taken care of. A portion went to the Lord and a portion went to them. And that's how they got fed. Jump over to chapter 6, Leviticus chapter 6. Look at verses 8 through 18. So the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth, on the altar, all night until the morning. 
and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and put his linen garment undergarment on his body. And he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering on the altar and put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. The fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. And this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it before the Lord in front of the altar. And one shall take from it a handful of fine flour of the grain offering and its oil and all the frankincense that's on the grain offering and burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the rest of it Aaron and his sons shall eat. It shall be eaten unleavened in a holy place. In the court of the tent of meeting they shall eat it. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their portion of my food offerings. It is a thing most holy, like the sin offering and the guilt offering. Every male among the children of Aaron may eat of it as decreed forever throughout your generations from the Lord's food offerings. Whatever touches them shall become holy. Isn't that interesting? The portion that was given to God, of course, was holy, but the portion that was given to Aaron and his sons was also considered holy and most holy, and whoever touches it becomes holy. Don't miss the picture of the fact that whatever comes in contact with the sacrifice for sin becomes holy. Oh, there's more. Go to Leviticus chapter 6 and look at verses 24 through 30. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons. This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It's most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten in the court of the tent of meeting. Whatever touches its flesh shall be holy. And when any of its blood is splashed on a garment, you shall wash that on which it was splashed in a holy place. And the earthenware vessel in which it was boiled, that's how they wash it. They boiled it in water, it's hot water, shall be broken. But if it's boiled in a bronze vessel, that shall be scoured and rinsed in water. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It is most holy. But no sin offering shall be eaten from which any of the blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place. It shall be burned up with fire. So here we see some more instructions about what's holy and what's not and what's clean and what's not. That's important because we're going somewhere. Go to Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 20. A very interesting episode here in the life of the nation of Israel. It says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uzael, uncle of Aaron. And he said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eliezer and Ithmar, his other two sons that were still alive, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes, lest you die. And wrath come upon all the congregation, but let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die. For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, 
Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and to Ithmar, his surviving sons. Take the grain offering that's left of the Lord's food offerings and eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it's most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place, because it's your due and your sons due from the Lord's food offerings, for so I am commanded. But the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, you shall eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you, for they are given as your due and your sons due from the sacrifices of the peace offerings of the people of Israel. The thigh that is contributed and the breast that is waved, they shall bring with the food offerings of the fat pieces to wave for a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be yours and your sons with you as a due forever, as the Lord has commanded. By the way, that means they got white meat and dark meat at the same time. <clears throat> so that solves the, the argument right there. Now Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it was burned up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary, since it is the thing most holy and has been given to you, that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation and make atonement for them before the Lord? Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary, as I commanded. And Aaron said to Moses, Behold, today they have offered the sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and yet such things of these have happened. In other words, my other two sons were killed. Such of these things have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. In other words, there was a part of the ritual they were supposed to do that they didn't keep because of all that went on. And Moses says, Hey, you didn't fulfill your duty. And Aaron says, Look, we've offered the other offerings. If we had done that offering, do you think God would have been pleased? You've already seen how he feels about what happened today. And Moses said, okay, we're going to let it go for today. But I want you to go back to verses 10 and 11. The role of the priest was to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. We're going to transition for a little while right now and not get too caught up in the millennial kingdom priest's role and all that, we're going to take a look at our role tonight for a while as priests. And you say, wait a minute, Jim, where, where does it say I'm a priest? Well, actually the Bible says that we are. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> Passage we closed with last week, just real briefly, and we're going to start to look at it in more detail tonight. We too have a serious, 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 12. We have a serious role to play in God's design for we who are in Christ, those of us who have been in contact with the true sacrifice and have been made holy, are now priests and serve the Lord between men and God. What were the two main responsibilities in Leviticus 10 of the priests between God and Israel? They were distinguished between what and what? Holy and common, clean and unclean. And they were to what? Teach the statutes of the Lord. In other words, the priests had been given very clear instruction and they were taught what is clean, what is holy, what is good, what is common. And they were to teach the instructions of the Lord to the people because the people didn't know what the priests knew. Those of us who have been brought into a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, who have been made holy forever, those of us who are being sanctified, we have been given a responsibility as priests between God and man right now, all of us, not just the preachers, all of us have been given a role, and the two main things that we're to be focusing on today, and you're going to see this, 
are that we're going to be uh, the ones who, between God and the people who don't know God, distinguish between holy and common, clean and unclean, and teach them the commands of the Lord. How are they going to know who God is? Well, His Spirit reveals through creation. His Spirit is doing the work of drawing people, but He also uses you and me as His instruments. Well, as you're about to see, we're priests. So go to 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. We're going to show you in this passage in a little bit what those spiritual sacrifices are. But we, have, we who are believers, who are brought, part of what God's doing through Christ, we are being built into a spiritual house, a royal priesthood, as you're about to see, a holy priesthood is what it says here, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am lay, laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They, the unbelievers, stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Does that sound familiar? They were to teach the people what's holy and common, clean and unclean, and teach them all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. We now have been made priests, and we're a royal priesthood. We're not just priests, we're a royal priesthood. Why? Because we're sons and daughters of the King. We're co-heirs with Jesus Christ. We're a royal priesthood, and we have been brought from darkness to light, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people... But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Does anybody see yet what our spiritual sacrifices are yet? In this passage, what would you think are our spiritual sacrifices? Humility is a very good one. I'm sorry? Our worldly reputation. In other words, we're to live as holy among the world who is not holy. By the way, that's a, that's a struggle, is it not? Even though we've been born again, Hopefully you all understand, we still struggle against flesh and blood. Our flesh and blood. Our wrestling is against the spiritual forces of evil, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6. But we still wrestle against our flesh. That's why daily we have to lay it on the altar. Our sacrifice is saying no to the flesh and yes to the spirit. Our sacrifice, spiritual offerings of sacrifice, is to live our lives in such a way, oh, only through Jesus Christ can you do it. Only by the power of the spirit can you do it. It's to live in such a way that the world sees a difference between holy and common, clean and unclean. And in doing so, we teach people the statutes of God. Now, 
Are we doing it so that people will understand that God's a God of rules? No. We're doing it so that people understand that there's holiness and there's sin. And we live in a world today which says there's no such thing as sin. Everybody gets to do what's right in their own eyes. And whatever truth for you is, is truth for you. Whatever's truth for you is truth for you. And whatever's truth for me is truth for me. And I don't really think anybody should say some things are right and some things are wrong. Let everybody go into whatever bathroom they want to go into and let everybody do whatever they want to do. And that's the attitude of the world. But the Bible says that those of us who have been set apart by God, who were not a people but now are a people, have been left in this world to serve as a royal priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices to God, which is acceptable. And we're to be living our lives in this world in such a way that the people realize there's a difference between us and them. But let me ask you a question. Is the world today seeing much of a difference between the church and the world? We'll deal with that in more detail in a bit, but what's the answer to that question? Unfortunately, no. Unfortunately, no. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at verses 13 through 25. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Put your focus on what is to come. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Sounds like he's talking to the priest, isn't it? Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you're, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the word that this good news that was preached to you. Again, he says, we are to be living in such a way in this world that we're saying no to the flesh and yes to the spirit. We're to put off the deeds that we used to do when we were before we knew Christ. And we're to live as holy lives because the one who's called us is holy. Therefore, we are to be holy. Now, again, you and I cannot be holy in and of ourselves. If you come out of this message thinking, I'm going to try harder to live for Jesus, you've already failed. But I want you to first off understand that God is expecting you to live your life in such a way in yieldedness to him that he can use you as his representative in this world. But if you look like everybody else. How could he use you as his representative? Well, just as the priest had to be made clean in order to perform his duties, so too we who have been made holy must stay in the sanctification process so we can be effective in our roles as representatives of a holy God. By the way, the priest would go and each day there was this sanctification process. That's why they had holy garments and unholy garments and these types of things. Go with me to Matthew chapter 5. 
and look at verses 13 through 16. I'll be honest with you, this has actually been helpful for me in my study and in my walk with the Lord, because I, just like you, still struggle against the passions of my flesh. But one of the things that has helped me in my struggle against sin to yield more to the Spirit of God and say no to my flesh has been the idea of the understanding that God wants me to be noticeably different. He wants me, as He works through me, as I yield to Him in obedience and let His Spirit give me victory over sin, He wants to use me as His representative in the world. But look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. He says, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That ties back to the verse that Jeff shared with us at the end of last week's study in John chapter 3, verse 21, that anybody that comes into the light, it becomes evident that what they did was done by God. Folks, they're not going to be impressed with how, how you live and how holy you are and how amazing you are. When they start seeing a real difference between us and the world, they're going to say, that's obviously being done by God because humans can't do that. Humans can't do that. But what he says, look what Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. He said, if the salt's lost its saltiness, what good is it? The end of Luke chapter 18, Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? In the letter of Jesus to the churches, the seven churches in the book of Revelation, we see that they represent time periods as well and the, the progression of the church through the church age. When he gets to the church at Laodicea, what does he say to the church at Laodicea? I wish you were hot or cold. You're so lukewarm, you're no good. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. By the way, that's when the rapture comes and those who aren't truly saved, although they claim to be Christians, are going to be left behind. That's when they're going to be spit out. He said, you don't realize you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And folks, let me just tell you, as one who travels around and sees the church across the country, let me tell you, we're spending too much time fighting over the service on Sunday morning. It grieves me. It grieves me. And to be honest with you, the prophet in me gets a little angry at times to see how many churches are so focused on how people dress or what's going on and whether or not the music's what they like. And we just think that's church. Church is not about the music. Church is not about whether or not it's comfortable for you. Church is a called out group of people who've been called to live holy lives in this world so that the world will realize there's a holy God and they're not holy because he's holy and man isn't holy. And we're the ones who are going to be teaching them. The only reason we look different from you is because we came to know him through Jesus Christ and he forgave our sins and he came to indwell us and he's the one that's empowering us to live in this way. It's not because I'm a good guy and I followed the rules. Look, I struggle with sin just like you, but I've learned to say no to the flesh and yes to the spirit as daily I lay my flesh on the altar and renew my mind and I'm not conformed to the pattern of this world and I let Jesus have control and that's why there's a difference but what does the church see fussing fighting dissension arguments over stuff that isn't church 
Our churches are full of people who claim Christianity and aren't truly born again. If we're as close to the return of Jesus as I believe it is, and the Bible tells us the church is going to lose its saltiness, and the Bible says there's going to be this apostasy, and the Bible says the church of Laodicea is going to be mostly lost. By the way, you all love to quote Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. We've even seen the picture of Jesus knocking on that door. You know that painting? We love to see that he's calling out to the lost, and actually he is. But that's a letter to the church in Laodicea. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and I sure love to come in and eat with you, and you with me was written to the church in the last days. Folks, I don't have any control over whether or not you listen to this message or put it into practice, but I hope you do. I hope you do. Because the day is coming when it will become real evident to the rest of the world who the true believers are, who the true sons and daughters of God are. The Bible actually says that creation's waiting for the sons of God to be revealed because creation knows it's going to be released from its bondage after the rapture of the church. So, folks, what is our responsibility? We've been set aside by God as a holy priesthood. We are to be living our lives by saying no to the flesh and yes to the spirit on a daily basis in such a way that the people see Jesus. Can anybody list for me what the evidence of the spirit is? Okay. Did you catch that? Hang on a second. The evidence the Bible says of the spirit is not that you fall down backwards. The evidence of the Spirit is not that your eyes roll back in your head. The evidence of the Spirit is not that your tongue does stuff you have no idea what it's doing. The evidence of the Spirit, the Bible says, is love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and kindness and self-control. Does that sound like a church business meeting to you? Sounds like the exact opposite, doesn't it? Actually, if I were to take you back to Galatians chapter 5... It says the acts of the flesh. We just quoted verses 22 and following. The fruit of the Spirit are. Verses prior to that in verse 19 and following says the acts of the flesh are obvious. And it lists not only fornication and all that. It also lists dissension, factions, envy, strife. People getting in their little groups and fussing about things. Folks, I say this to you in love. We all have a tendency to get sucked into some of this stuff in our churches. We all have an opinion on stuff. We all have preferences. Lay them down. Your role as a priest is to be a representative of who God is. And you do that by allowing him to take control of your life and produce his evidence of his spirit in you. And that means the stuff that gets everybody else all freaked up isn't going to get you freaked out. It's going to actually get you to be relaxed and gentle, kind, patient. And when all everybody else is all acting, you actually are one that can say, we'll be fine. Those of us who know Jesus, we'll be fine. Go to Ezekiel chapter 43. I've decided to continue with Ezekiel tonight. <clears throat> Ezekiel chapter 43. Look at verses 1 through 9. As you know, Ezekiel's been being led around through the temple complex by this man. We know now it's Jesus, pre-incarnate. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. 
And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Kebar Canal, and I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple, and he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither should they nor their kings, by their whoring and by their dead bodies of the kings at their high places, by setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost by my doorpost, with only a wall between me and them. By the way, I don't know if any of you caught it, but when they showed the dimensions of the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place in the Millennial Temple, if you read closely, the priest chambers that were on each side were not connected. They had separate walls. There was a space between the walls of the priest chambers and the Holy Place. They didn't share a wall on each side, like some cheap hotels. Look at verse 9. Actually, we'll go back to verse 8. By serving their threshold, by setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost beside my doorpost with only a wall between me and them, they have defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed, so I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their whoring and the dead bodies of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. Now, if you remember what's going on, he's been taken on this tour all over the Millennial Kingdom Temple Complex, showing them all the different things. And then he's having to measure everything and write it all down. And then he takes him to the east gate. And he looks out the east gate. This is the outer gate of the temple complex. And he sees coming from the east the glory of God. Now, don't miss this. He said, that's just like the glory that I saw at the Kebar Canal when God revealed himself to him and called him. He said, it was also just like the glory I saw when he came and destroyed Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? The same glory to some is, wow, and they fall in worship. That same glory to others is destruction. Actually, Paul says in the book of Corinthians that to some we are the smell of life, the fragrance of life to others, or the aroma of death. And who is sufficient to such a situation? None of us. Our sufficiency doesn't come from us, but comes from God. But as we preach the truth of who God is and His holiness, some will fall on their knees and say, God, I believe others will be, they're going to receive judgment. That same glory saves some and judges others. But I also want to remind you, and I want to take you back, go to Ezekiel chapter 9. This is actually the same path that the Holy Spirit took when it left the temple. You remember back at the beginning of our study, we saw that Ezekiel was given a vision of the Holy Spirit leaving the temple right before the judgment. As he was taken into captivity, he was taken in the spirit to Jerusalem and he saw the holy temple and he saw all the unholy things that were going on in it and how they were worshiping other gods. And he saw the spirit of God leave. But I want you to see it. Ezekiel chapter nine. Look at verse three a. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. It's come to the threshold of the Holy of Holies. All right. Chapter 10. Look at verse 4. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with the cloud and the 
so the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. Now he's stepping out of the holy place into the court, and the glory of the Lord's moving out of the holy place of the temple of Solomon into the courtyard. Go to chapter 10, verses 18 and 19. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheel beside them. And they stood at the entrance of what? The east gate of the house of the Lord. And the glory of the God of Israel was over. Remember, the glory of God always rode around on the cherubim. The wheels within the wheels. Remember that? As he leaves the temple, he gets on the cherubim and they start taking him out through the east gate of the temple complex. Go to chapter 11. Look at verses 22 and 23. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is east of the city. So the Holy Spirit gets up from the, the, the Ark of the Covenant there in Solomon's temple, comes to the threshold of the holy place, goes out into the outer court, gets on the cherubim, goes through the east gate, and out the east to a mountain. Go back to Ezekiel 33, uh, 43 and let's read it again. Then he led me up to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. Same pattern he left leaving is how he's going to come back. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory, and the vision I saw was just like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision I had seen by the Kebar Canal, and I fell on my face as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing the east. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And then the man said, this is where I'm going to dwell forever and ever. All right? Kind of cool, isn't it? But there's something important here that helps us understand that this has to be the Millennial Kingdom temple. Uh, let me show you what I mean. Go to Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40, look at verses 34 through 38. What we're about to read is the conclusion of the building of the tabernacle in the wilderness. In Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 through 38. It said, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their, in the sight of all Israel throughout all their journeys. So when they finished building this tabernacle, according to the instructions given to Moses, and he passed it on to the workers that were gifted to do it, Bezalel and Aholiab were the two guys, plus some others, they finished building it the way God said, and then when it was done and completed, the Spirit of God came to indwell the tabernacle. And above the tabernacle was a pillar of fire by night and cloud by day. And whenever the, God, the Spirit of God would move and lift up and set out, they'd follow, pack up the tabernacle, and go wherever He was leading. That's important. That's going to help us in a little bit. But don't miss that when the tabernacle was finished being built, God's Spirit came to indwell it. Go to 1 Kings chapter 8. As you're turning to 1 Kings chapter 8, you know that uh, David wanted to build God a temple because the Spirit of God was living in the tent still. The tabernacle was all they had still, even though Israel was starting to get built up. And David says, I'm living in a paneled house, and 
God, you're living in a tent. I'm going to build you a temple. And if you know, God said to him, I'm not going to let you to be the one I've chosen. I've chosen your son Solomon to be the one to build it. So David helps him collect all the materials. And David dies before it's ever finished being built. But when Solomon finishes building the temple, the first permanent structure that was built there in Jerusalem, 1 Kings chapter 8, look at verses 1 through 11. Look at what happens. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel, before King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the Ark, and they brought up the Ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent, the priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, the most, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the outside. And they are there to this day, as of the time it was written. There was nothing in the ark except the two, stone, two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel. When they came out of the land of Egypt and when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And they carried the ark from the tabernacle into the temple, and they set it down. The Spirit of God came to indwell Solomon's tabernacle. Filled it so much, just like the other time in the tabernacle, the priests couldn't even get in to do their work because the glory of God was so thick and so awesome there. As we saw, though, in Ezekiel chapter 8 through chapter 11, just a few minutes ago, what happened to the Spirit of God that moved into that temple? He left. Because of the sinfulness of Israel and the wickedness, he could not stay there anymore, and he left. We do not see any recording of the Spirit of God coming to indwell the temple of Zerubbabel. The one that was built after the exile in Babylon by Ezra and Nehemiah, you will find nowhere in the Scripture that the Spirit of God ever dwelt in that one. But then we see that he's going to come and dwell in the Millennial Kingdom temple. This has to be another temple. Because he not only says he's going to come and indwell it, how long is he going to stay? Forever. Yes, ma'am. On 8, um, verse 1, mm -hmm. that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant um, of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. Right. So they brought it out of the city of David right. to Solomon's temple. Which is in Jerusalem. Which is in Jerusalem. Correct. And, but the millennial temple is in the city of David. Actually, we're not fully sure where the millennial temple is going to be for this reason. There's going to be such topological changes during the end of the tribulation period. What was isn't going to be. You see what I'm saying? So you can't really say, here's where it's going to be. Because actually, and that's something I haven't brought out, but if you're interested and you do the math of how big the Millennial Temple is, it will not fit on the Temple Mount right now. If for some reason 
by a miracle. The Muslims gave up the Temple Mount and gave the whole Temple Mount back to Israel. And they tried to build the, the, the Millennial Kingdom Temple. Now, to the dimensions, it wouldn't even fit on the Holy Mount right now. It's way, way too big. I thought the new temple was going to be built where the mosque is. I, there's a chance this temple won't be built where the mosque is. There's a chance that the temple, remember, there's going to be a third temple that's going to be built, and the Antichrist is going to step into it. But that's not the one we're talking about. That one's going to, the one we're talking about is going to be built after the Antichrist desecrates whatever temple is going to be there during the, the tribulation period. Some think that that might be where it is. We don't know exactly where that's going to be. There has to be a third temple still to be built before the Millennial Kingdom Temple. But to say it's going to be in this city or that city, the, the, the topolo- topographical changes are going to be so big. But not the, not mm-hmm. the Millennial Kingdom, but the, um, the Third Temple. Again, we can assume where it's going to be built, but to be honest with you, Israel's not going to be in full obedience. We don't know they're going to be in full obedience then. You see what I'm saying? People like to argue over where it's going to be and where it should be. Yes, the Ark was brought from the city of David to Jerusalem. True. But... We don't know where it's going to be. There's going to be a third one. It's going to be desecrated by the Antichrist. Then there's going to be a fourth. Okay? But this fourth one wouldn't even fit on the Holy Mountain right now. But remember from our study earlier, during the end of the tribulation period, there's going to be this earthquake that levels everything on the whole earth. And Jerusalem's going to be split into three parts, and the center part's going to be raised up. There's going to be this huge mountain there in the center, and that's where the temple's going to be. So it wouldn't even fit where it is now. All right? All right, now... For now, though, where does the Holy Spirit dwell? In the temple of the believers. Exactly. I want to kind of take you through that real quick. I want to remind you of this because I know we know it, but we don't know it. I know we can pass the written test, but I love you. We're failing The driving test. You've heard me say over and over, to get your driver's license, you have to pass two tests. You can go in, pass the written test with flying colors. You can get 100 on the the written test. That doesn't mean they give you a driver's license, because then you got to go drive. And if you fail the driving test, you don't get a driver's license. The church today knows all the right answers, but we're not letting him have control. We're not living out the truth that we have in our heads. And so I want to take you back and remind you of some things in hopes that the Spirit of God will invigorate you to start putting into practice the truth that you already know so that you can be one of these people who walks in the Spirit, who yields to the Spirit, one of those people that give evidence of the Spirit being in you through your gentleness and kindness and self-control and your love and your joy and your peace and patience. Yeah, I said it. Go to John chapter 14, look at verses 15 through 20. John chapter 14, verses 15 through 20. Jesus is with his disciples right before he goes to the cross. They've just had the Last Supper, he's washed their feet, and he says, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments, and I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you, he told his disciples. I love this. I will not leave you as orphans. I'm not going to give birth to you and then leave you on your own. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. In that day, you will know that I'm in my father and you're in me and I'm in you. So hang on for a second. Jesus said, 
obey my Father's commands. I'm going to ask the Father, and He's going to send you the Holy Spirit, and He's going to be in you. But then Jesus goes and says, on that day you're going to realize I'm in you. So which is it? Is He going to send the Holy Spirit, or is it going to be Him? Yes, actually, the Father too. Because you're going to realize that I'm in the Father, and you're in me, and I'm in you, and you're swimming in God. Both. that's your baptism, by the way. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Your water baptism is a picture of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But if you've been born again and sealed by the Spirit of God, Jesus is in the Father, you're in Him, He's in you, you're baptized. You weren't sprinkled. You were immersed in the Spirit of God. You have been baptized already in the Spirit. Don't let people tell you you need some other baptism. You've already been baptized. You've been put into Jesus. He's in you. You're swimming in God. All right? Now, he goes on and says in... Later on, he says, wait in Jerusalem until you receive this gift that the Father's promised. What is the promise? The Holy Spirit coming to indwell them. Now, in John chapter 20, though, something very interesting happens. Before Jesus goes to the Father, remember Jesus himself said in John chapter 16, verse 7, he said, it's good for you that I'm going away. Because if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit can't come. Yet in John chapter 20, Jesus does something very interesting where the Bible says he comes into the upper room where they're hiding on that day that he rose from the dead. And he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. We're not going to take the time to pull that. I just want to tell you. Why was he breathing on them to receive the Holy Spirit if he said the Holy Spirit can't come until after I go to the Father and he's still here? And at the same time, what in the world was happening in Acts chapter 2? Let me clarify for you. Apart from him... We can do nothing. And Jesus knew, I'm going to say it as easily as I can, the dudes couldn't even wait in Jerusalem for him without his help. He, in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would come upon people to empower them for a service, for a purpose. The Holy Spirit would leave. That's why David in Psalm 51, when he sinned with Bathsheba, wrote, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. We don't got to worry about that because of the indwelling Spirit, and he's always going to stay. Yet, at that moment, they didn't even have the ability to wait in Jerusalem unless he helped them, and so he empowered them, Old Testament style, to wait. But in Acts chapter 2, go to Acts chapter 2. You're going to see something kind of cool. Look at verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. By the way, in chapter 1, Jesus goes back to the Father. After his 40 days, after his resurrection, appearing to them and teaching them, he then ascends to the Father. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Does that sound familiar? And, the day, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, let me clarify something for you, what's going on here. We got so caught up in the fact that they spoke in other languages that they didn't even know. And people heard them in languages that the speakers didn't even know. We got caught up in all this tongue stuff. We missed something. When the Holy Spirit came to indwell the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40, what happened? The Spirit came and filled that room so much they couldn't get in. And on top of it was what? A pillar of fire. And wherever this, well, go to Numbers chapter 9. Don't take my word for it. My job isn't to try to convince you of what I believe. My job is to show you what the Bible says and let you wrestle with it. Go to Numbers chapter 9. Numbers chapter 9. Look at verses 15. 
and following. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And at evening it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out, and at the command of the Lord, they camped. And as long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. Even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, the people of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and didn't set out. Sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle, according to the command of the Lord, they remained in camp. Then according to the command of the Lord, they set out. And sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning. And when the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out. If it continued for a day and a night where the cloud lifted, they set out. And whenever it was two days or a month or a longer time that the cloud continued over the tabernacle abiding there, the people of Israel remained in camp and did not set out. But when it lifted, they set out. And at the command of the Lord, they camped. And at the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. Bunch here. Man, I could preach for an hour just on this passage right here. I would love to preach you a sermon on how those of us who have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit shouldn't do anything until the Holy Spirit tells us. If He doesn't move, they don't move. We have a hard time waiting, don't we? But when He moves, we're to walk in obedience. But how did He signify His Spirit coming to indwell the tabernacle? Again, here we see it. His Spirit came in and a pillar of fire was above the tabernacle, signifying that His Spirit had come to indwell. On that day in the upper room, when they were waiting for the promised Holy Spirit who was with them and was going to be in them, when he wasn't going to leave them comfortless and he wasn't going to leave them as orphans, and when he said, look, it's good for you that I go away, after Jesus ascends to the Father, they're there in that upper room, 10 days after Jesus ascended, and the Holy Spirit comes into that room. And a pillar of fire came into that room and divided. Did you catch the divided tongues? In other words, the pillar of fire was one pillar when it came into the room and it divided. Some of your King James translation said cloven tongues. Well, you picture a cloven hoof. It's a divided hoof. In other words, a pillar of fire came into that room. How did God signify his spirit coming to indwell the tabernacle or to indwell the, temper, the temple? The pillar of fire. It came into the room and divided into little individual pillars of fire. And when the Holy Spirit came to indwell each of the believers, he put a pillar of fire over each of their heads, even yours. Isn't that cool? He's signifying my spirit has come to indwell this person. Oh, and then they were empowered to do stuff they didn't even study for. We don't read anywhere that Peter was... Saturday night before the sermon at Pentecost saying, leave me alone, i got to work on my message. But buddy, he preached a good one, didn't he? As the Spirit brought to his remembrance the things that Jesus had been teaching and all the things that he had been studying all those years in the Word, the Spirit of God put it together for him and he preached a sermon that he probably wanted to go home and write down. Too many of us have no idea what it means to let the power of God do his work in our lives. And we say most of the time, I can't do that. You're right. But that doesn't mean God doesn't want you to. And most of us, oh, let me just make a little commercial. I know for those listening online, I'm sorry. But I'm going to be preaching the next three Sundays at LifePoint in Palm Bay. 
And I'm going to be preaching on interpersonal relationships according to the power of the Holy Spirit. And how we should no longer see each other according to flesh, but according to the Spirit. Either as someone who has the Spirit and those who don't. And that will affect how we treat each other. I'm going to do a three-part series on that at LifePoint in Palm Bay. I don't want to take you from your churches, but if you're interested, can't wait to dive into this concept of the Holy Spirit coming to indwell us and living through us in such a way that it affects how we treat each other. But that's the commercial. And for those of you that uh, are listening online, I gave you time to buy your plane ticket. All right, now, actually, it'll, that, those messages will be online. On LifePoint's website, and eventually they'll be on our website as well. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter six, look at verses 19 through 20. As he's dealing with Christians who are living in sexual sin, he says, "Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Doesn't that sound like what God was saying through Peter to us tonight? As a royal priesthood, we need to say no to the flesh and yes to the spirit so that we can offer spiritual sacrifices of living in the spirit and not in the flesh so that the world will understand the difference between holy and unclean and common and, and things that are holy. And we will be teaching them the statutes of God. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Look at verses 4 through 18. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites couldn't gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the law, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For unto this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Man, I thought the veil was removed and then they turned to the Lord. By the way, let me just say to you, those of you who think you know how God saves and what happens first, the chicken or the egg when it comes to salvation, whether it's faith and belief or repentance and whatever, let me just help you out. You don't know how God does it. The Bible says it's both. That man has a responsibility, and if it's done, it's been done by God. Stop trying to figure it out. My pastor at my home church is going to be preaching next Sunday on what the Bible teaches us is not how God saved, but why. 
Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord there's freedom. And we all, listen closely, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Did you catch that? He's come to indwell you, but He doesn't expect you to glow right away. But we have no idea how much glory God has that he wants to manifest through us. And if Moses just hung out in the presence of God, so much so that his face had a glory that scared everybody when he came down from the mountain, how much more glory do we have living within us? And then he goes on and says, when we let him take control, it's a process where we become more and more like him. And his glory becomes even more and more seen. I'm going to say something nicely, as nicely as I can. That means that those of us who are older and getting older, and as Abraham was described as near dead, should be looking more and more like Jesus, not less and less. One of the saddest things is to watch older Christians become cantankerous. The Bible says you're going to be supposed to be getting closer and closer and more and more like Jesus. By the way, is the Holy Spirit going to leave you? Remember John 14, verse 16? I'm going to ask the Father, and He's going to send you a helper, and He's going to be with you forever. That means we need to begin to understand what it means to be yielded to the Spirit, to allow Him to do His work through us, so that we can be proper priests before God. If you can be here this next three weeks in Palm Bay. Hopefully I can help you with that. Until then, I love you. See you next week.